You're listening to the Surf Simply podcast, bringing you news and opinion about surf culture, characters, coaching and competition from the team at the Surf Simply Coaching Resort. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses, go to surfsimply.com. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to episode 55 of the Surf Simply podcast. We're recording on Tuesday, the 23rd of January, 2018. My name is Harry Knight, and with me today is Rue Hill. Hello, everybody. Asha King. Hello, podcasters. And Tommy Potterton. Hello, world. And uh, we are back. Happy New Year, everybody. Uh, we are, we, it's been a little bit of a hiatus. We, we've had some very up and down weather conditions over the last couple of weeks. We had a, a lot of windy days that's meant lots of changing the uh, timetables for our coaching schedule at the resort. And that's made squeezing in podcasts a little bit tricky. But we are here now. Have you guys ever climbed Mount Kilimanjaro? No, I've been to the foot of Mount Kilimanjaro and I've looked up and it's very, very, very big. That's more than I was expecting. <laughs> I didn't know you are a geographer. Yeah, two varies there. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we, we were really, really pleased to be listed in Forbes listeners a few days ago as a, a trip to Surf Simply was the uh, rank number two as of the trips of a lifetime after uh, climbing Mount Kilimanjaro that was number one. I would quite like to climb it because there's a guy now that does a hike and fly from Kilimanjaro. You, you hike up over a couple of days and then you fly back down again using paragliders. That does sound pretty amazing. That sounds sick. I'm not sure if I have the legs for hiking. That sounds terrifying. That'd be awesome. Jumping off Kilimanjaro on a paraglider. That'd be amazing. I'm getting cold palms just <laughs> thinking about <laughs> That's terrifying. Um, how have you guys been? You went home for Christmas, Ash? I did and it was it was freezing it was the coldest snap of weather i've ever been in florida for it was sub freezing every day and it actually coincided with some really good surf but it was so cold and i was just totally unprepared marine and i went up to park city to go skiing the same time you're in florida and then that massive cold front hit the whole of the east coast and loads of people that were coming down to stay with us hair got stuck and in park city there was just no snow. It was mostly brown mud and rocks <laughs> and some man-made snow being half-heartedly sprayed onto the, the couple of slopes at the bottom of the mountain. And so we mostly just were walking around in kind of slushy, hot Park City. And uh, yeah, and then the whole of the East Coast just got smashed with snow. Yeah, it was a pretty wild couple of weeks on the East Coast. So yeah. you, you were wearing a wetsuit in Florida. I was wearing a hooded 4-3 with boots and gloves and I was still frozen. I mean, it's been pretty much sub-freezing since I left. It's going on a month now. So, yeah, pretty crazy weather. Now, and on the subject of being cold, Tommy, you had Christmas here. I assumed that you were wrapped up in sweatshirt and sweatpants and a woolly hat, as is your typical attire <laughs> in this. For, for the benefit of the listeners, I am the only person in the jumper, and I've got <laughs> a woolly blanket behind me just in case. Um, but no, for Christmas, it was super sunny here. That's become my favorite holiday to, to stay in Costa Rica. This year, I joined the Tope, which is um, which is horse riding through town, and I never want to miss a future Tope. It was so much fun. Did you really enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. I so, loved it. So, so, listeners, the Tope is like a Costa Rican tradition where everyone gets on horses and they sort of ride round. It's like halfway between going horse riding and bar uh, drinking and going on a bar crawl. Yeah. So there's kind of usually a truck that goes in front with a cooler of beers, and about every mile or two, everyone stops and has an Imperial, a local beer. And then you carry on. And, and I always think when you're sitting on the horse, number one, it's hot and it's dusty and there's things biting you. And number two, importantly, you have to sit on a horse, which is a big minus for me. 
So I always like to volunteer to be the guy driving the truck. And then you get to sit in the truck, in the AC, listening to a nice <laughs> podcast. And everyone taps on the window now and again and goes, thank you so much for driving the truck. That's so kind of you, giving up sitting on a horse. And you're like, that's okay. I don't mind. Yeah, um, I we did it. And it was uh, Jesse, uh, out of the team, there was Jesse, Will and I. And I'm pretty new to horse riding. But after each beer went down, it just kind of relaxed you a little bit more. A little bit more. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was a great day. Really, really good day. And uh, you guys took the... We, we've got a new camera that we're playing with. So um, thank you to the guys at Rilo that have helped us out with that. I'm very excited about this. I've been wanting a camera that would allow us to do easily do 360 spherical videos out in the water because I've got lots of cool ideas for coaching with it. Uh, until about two months ago, the only option was to get six GoPros, bolt them together into a square, and then horrible clunky software to try and stitch it all together. And this uh, this new camera from Rilo is amazing because you go out and you just shoot with it and you plug it into your phone and you have a 360 video immediately available, ready to be uploaded to social media. And when are we going to get a water housing for said Rilo? Ah, yeah, it's on its way. So, yeah, the only problem was when they sent it to us, they had the cameras in stock. They didn't have the uh, waterproof, like the, the similar to the GoPro housings. Uh, they didn't have one of those in stock, but it's on its way. The thing that I really like about that Rilo camera isn't that you can get the 3D image out of it. It's that you can edit which bit of that 3D spherical image you want to use as a normal 16 by 9 sort of TV-shaped rectangle. Yeah after you've filmed it so you can you can go and film walking down to the beach or whatever and then afterwards you can go through that video and choose where it is you want the camera to be pointing which is really cool and if you think about the potential for that in terms of you know when it's scaled up for hollywood movies now it won't be like now the camera points here now the camera points here you'll just instead be able to have all the action happening everything filmed in 3d and then the director can do most of the directing after it's been filmed Back in the studio. That's amazing. Yeah. With a a 360 camera shooting in 4K, I mean, the file size has got to be huge. Do you have to use a special SD card in that? No, but it does fill up the SD card quite quick. Yeah, Uh, it has to. (laughs) It came with like, you know how they always come with like a 16 gig card? The micro SD. It fills that up pretty quick, so we might have to get a, uh, a bigger card on it. But it's been a lot of fun playing with that, and I'm really excited to get in the water later on. It's going to be really cool when... VR and AR headsets, like virtual reality and augmented reality headsets mm. become the norm. And they're not these big clunky things that have to sit on the front of your face, but they're just regular mm-hmm. hipster glasses like the pair that I'm sporting rather fashionably right now. You are sporting them very um, fashionably. And you, and yeah, once you've, once you've got images like that that you can then just plug in and turn on and be looking around in, yeah. that's going to change everything. I, I've been kind of following this technology for fun and it seems like the VR revolution is just around the corner. I mean, I know they always say everything is five to 10 years away, but mm-hmm. I feel like it, it really is making these big leaps and bounds every year. And it's just crossing the line now from going from early adopters to just general use. Yeah. And I think that just like the smartphone revolution was like, I guess like five years ago mm-hmm. or something like that. So I, I think that the VR revolution is going to be just around the corner. Yeah, we've talked about it before on the show, but I mean, augmented reality is going to be incredible as well, where you're, you're looking at you know the, the normal world, but with little bits added. That, I can't wait till we're all running oh. around the jungle here in Nasara shooting at VR zombies. It's going <laughs> to be awesome. Anyone else get up to anything interesting uh, while we've been away? Well, I turned 40, so I'm now on the downslope of life. <laughs> sliding, kicking and screaming towards the grave. And I, I wasn't going to have a party because I don't think 
anyone over the age of nine should organize birthday parties for themselves. But you should go along with just whatever other people wanted to do. And Danny came up to me, our, our partner and resort manager at Surf Simile, and she said that she wasn't going to fly out of Nosara in order to be here for my party, which I wasn't having. So I set up a little Facebook event. And then right here in the Surf Simile podcast recording studio, otherwise known as my house, mm. we ended up with like 50 people here. You, you did it was having, so much fun. For a man that didn't decide to organize a birthday party, when I walked through the door, you had a large inflatable pink flamingo hanging from the ceiling <laughs> with matching pink fairy lights all the way around. Uh, it, well, the pink flamingo was largely to do with Steve from Climb Nosara. <laughs> he, he came over and was hanging out in the den. He's like, how can I help set up the party? And all of his suggestions involved him climbing some aspect of the house. Yeah. So hanging a pink flamingo from the ceiling just seemed like, well, why wouldn't you since we had it anyway? Steve is a man who's found his niche in life, really, Absolutely. isn't he? Um, so I would yeah. also say, I don't think that you can yet claim to be on the downslope, given that... I like where this is going. Well, because... Number one, the current life expectancy for, for us is, what, 80-something. But that's increasing all the time. So really, by the time we get there, we can probably expect to live closer to 100. And we've all chosen to live in the middle of a blue zone where everybody lives forever. So I think you've got a good, like, 10 years before you're on the downslope. What I'm planning to do is to stay alive just long enough mm -hmm. that I'm one of the last generation of people that... I'm one of the first generation of people that gets to download themselves, you know, oh, or, yeah. or upload themselves. Upload themselves. <laughs> yeah. So then, you know, because there's, there's going to be at one point where you just don't have to die anymore. You, all we've got to do is stay alive long enough that we're around when that technology happens. But then, of course, we get stuck into that massive argument we had in the office about if you make a copy of yourself on a hard drive, is that really you? Because, of course, you're making... This goes back to the, trans, the Star Trek transporter beams, right? Yeah. Where really you're not moving... Captain Kirk, you're killing Captain Kirk and then creating a copy of him down on the planet. Yeah. For listeners that have not <laughs> gone back through our previous episodes or who don't hang out in restaurants with me and Rue, this is a discussion that me and Rue have had for many years that normally gets us kicked off the adult table and sent to the small child table in the corner of the room to continue our discussion away from everybody else. I think it's a very legitimate discussion. I thought <laughs> you were going to say for listeners who think that they've tuned into a surf podcast. <laughs> yes. We haven't said a single thing about surfing. <laughs> we we do have a lot to talk about. We okay. do have a lot to talk about. So um, quickly before we roll into uh, everything else, just a couple of quick follow-ups. While we were away, and I guess partly the reason that we've been off air for so long is we had these two interviews that came up at very short notice. And one of them was with Matt Warshaw, who was trying to raise money to save the Encyclopedia of Surf project. And I'm very glad to say that it worked. And listeners, I got an email from Matt Warshaw thanking you guys a lot he said he got a lot of emails from people saying that they'd listened to the surf simply podcast heard the interview and had then reached out and donated so thank you to all of you that did that he was trying to raise thirty thousand. he ended up reaching sixty thousand dollars so the eos is very much saved which is great i've noticed that he's kind of for the, those of you who haven't been following the encyclopedia for long matt is like invested in it with some new vigor Mm. He's posting a lot. He's sending his emails very often. It's like there's new life in it. So that is really that's really a cool thing that he managed to stay afloat. Yeah. And uh, old friend of Surf Simply, Mark Augus, who's a web designer and engineer, who actually does all of the stuff for SurfSimply.com and is, is an old friend of ours, has also taken over running the encyclopedia of surfing, uh, you know, from the, the back end, the back end of it. Yeah. The, the website of it. So he's now working with Matt. I don't know if you guys knew that. But oh, I, I didn't know that. Cool. That's incredible. Yeah. 
They're cool. Um, also, in a follow-up to episode 50, where you'll remember, listeners, that we did a review of Island Earth, Cyrus Sutton's movie, uh, Cyrus actually emailed us, and we ended up chatting with him. And he was he was kind of keen initially to come on the show and to talk about his his side of that discussion. I mean, it, it, we, we were talking a lot about, you know, how do we approach this conversation? How do we make sure we bring something new to the table from the listener's point of view? Uh, and we thought it'd be a really interesting experience. Anyway, we did have a chat with Cyrus for about half an hour. And Cyrus then emailed us the next day and he, he asked if we could not use the discussion. So I guess he felt that uh, it didn't represent his views as well as he would have liked, which is, which is fine. But he did say during the interview that he'd been criticized also by one of the journalists from Scientific American, who he had now developed quite a good rapport with. I think her name was Brooke Burrell. I, apologies if I've got that wrong. I think that's who it was. Uh, and he said that on his next project, he was going to be getting her input from a sort of science point of view. So I just thought that was really cool. Yeah, very cool. Alrighty. So uh, into the news, we've obviously been off air for quite a while and lots of uh, lots of little things have happened. But just to quickly round up, the World Tour finished its run uh, at Pipeline. John John won his second world title. And Jeremy Flores won his second Pipe Masters in some pretty good conditions. Not not perfect pipe, but but it was pretty good. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty happy that John John won. I think we all kind of wanted Medina to do well, but not that well. So I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> happy in terms of that. Well, not only did Jeremy Flores win the Pipe Masters, but he also was the kingmaker because he knocked out Medina in order to give John John the title. Yeah. So I think that, that's kind of a... There should be some kind of like nod for that as well. The, the mm. Kingmaker heat, I think, is a cool thing. And especially since as Jeremy Flores has had a bit of an up and down last few years himself. I don't know if you guys remember, but he had that horrible injury out at Lakey Peak. Was it three years ago? I think? Yeah, and he, he competed with a helmet on it at most of the heavy water waves on tour for a couple, maybe even the full season. Yeah, he, well, he had this, he hit the reef after doing an air. He hit the reef head first in Sumbawa and he completely lost his memory for for a few hours and then the helicopter was supposed to pick him up and it never arrived and i think it was i think it was wiggly dentist and someone else maybe jake patterson who was there with him and they were trying to like stop him going to sleep you know because he had such a severe head injury mm-hmm. and and apparently that's something that that shouldn't have he shouldn't have been allowed to do in his condition and uh, and then it was it wasn't long after that he was back competing at chopu with a helmet on and he won it yeah and um i don't know i just i just it's been interesting kind of following him. He was this amazing wonder kid when he was younger. And um, yeah, I don't know. I just, it's been really cool watching Jeremy Flores. And I, I really like seeing him do well. I don't see him winning a world title, but you know, winning a Pipe Masters and, and something like this, I think for him is a career highlight. Well, winning two Pipe Masters, when you think that someone like John John Florence now has never won a Pipe Master and Jeremy's done it twice, first time in really good pipe. So I think that that's pretty cool and that he's won pipe twice and now Chopu, that, that's got a I actually read an interview with him the other day and uh, and he was talking about how after he won the first Pipe Masters, he, he started partying pretty hard, a little too hard in his own mm. words. And uh, and it was two years after the Pipe Masters and, and one of his friends was like, dude, you're, you're like going pretty hard when you're going out in the evenings. He's like, I'm still celebrating the Pipe Masters. <laughs> <laughs> also in the news, Dusty Payne has uh, managed to injure himself, actually in a very similar set of circumstances. Oh, that was nasty. Broke mm. his jaw, fractured his skull underwater, airlifted to hospital. It looks like he's going to be okay, but but yeah, pretty heavy. And it was the cameraman on the inside off the wall, I think, that, that, pulled, him out. that pulled him out. And off the wall can get... It's one of those waves that, you know, pipe gets more of the, um, I guess, the headlines. 
but off the wall actually that bit of reef is is as heavy as backdoor i mean it's, it's mm -hmm. really or if not heavier it's really really shallow inside there there's just nowhere to go there's no channel to escape into yeah so some of the photographers apparently pulled him onto the beach and then he wasn't breathing and they had to pump his lungs and get the water out pretty scary stuff yeah it really shows i mean somebody like dusty who's surfed backdoor pipeline his entire life and, and when he got injured it wasn't on a crazy wave i mean it was it was kind of just a run-of-the-mill wipeout at, at, at backdoor for it to to hurt him like that i don't know it kind of raises the question again you know when is safety equipment when you're surfing gonna be in vogue yeah. how many times does something like that happen well and or, or, or when is it going to be mandated yeah you know how, how long can the wsl send their athletes out at big pipeline and backdoor and not mandate the use of helmets there's there's no question in my mind that it's going to happen it's just a question of when and as soon as all of those guys are wearing helmets in all the competitions it will very quickly become normal and filter down through the rest of the surfing community see now i really hope that because i think safety equipment is going to catch on i think that that is something that especially in big heavy conditions where it's shallow and it is it's incredibly dangerous I really hope that it's the surfers that adopt it and not the WSL that mandates it. I think if it happens from the top down, that'll almost be a bit counterproductive because so much of surfing, people are going to be like, oh, well, the WSL says that, you know, what are they trying to do to us now? I'd much rather it be somebody like, you know, Dusty Payne, a, a well-respected guy, or even Kelly Slater say that, you know, hey, I want to wear a helmet. And then I think it'll filter down through surfing so much faster. Well, except that we have had that on several occasions in the past. Yeah, I mean, well, Tommy Carroll famously always wears a helmet. Tom, yeah, Tommy Carroll always wore a helmet and nobody yeah, picked up Yeah, but after Tommy Carroll wore a helmet, helmets became a lot more popular for a while. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Everyone so, who I mean, put, I, like, every now and again, I've, I've worn a helmet out at spots. Uh, that I've thought were shallow and, and dangerous. And whenever I have put that helmet on my head and have felt a little self-conscious, the redeeming thought that's flashed through my mind is, Tommy Carroll would do this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you should use that all the way through life for everything, because there's a lot of things Tom Carroll's done that may be on such a good idea. Oh, no, no, no. Tom Carroll would do this. <laughs> um, so on the subject of uh, water rescues, there has been the first official drone rescue of two swimmers in Australia. The, the lifeguards in Australia have developed a system whereby the drone can carry out uh, inflatable buoys with uh, you know CO2 cartridge in them. So the, the the drone flies out, drops the inflatable to the uh, to the swimmer in distress, and then they can be rescued in in more normal means. But they were able to get uh, a life buoy to these two swimmers within 90 seconds, where they uh, the the lifeguards on the beach estimated it would have taken them six minutes. I saw this headline on, I think it was on the BBC website, I saw mm -hmm. it, and <laughs> I know this is really stupid, retrospectively, but my initial assumption was that the drone had flown out and they had some kind of special drone with arms <laughs> that <laughs> dropped down and sort of like picked up the person and flown them back to the beach. Uh, and I was trying to imagine how the whole mechanism would work and all the ways yeah. it can go wrong. And and I and I watched the video and it just it drops a float and it was like, oh yeah, obviously oh, yeah. that's that's how you would do yeah, it. Yeah, I was thinking it was like the claw in the arcade that <laughs> yeah. just kind of comes down. But then again, the claw's always really hard to pick up the, yeah. the item that you want. Yeah. And they'd be all like, wet and slippery. It's like, no, no, come on, try one more time, a little to the left. Oh. But no, I thought this was really cool. I've seen a couple of a couple of little ideas a bit like this. It's amazing when we fly our drone, which we do for to get video of the of the guest. You know, the perspective that you're given very very quickly and very clearly from that altitude, and the speed with which you can go from the top of the beach to hovering over a surfer out in the water. I mean, it just makes such perfect sense as a rescue tool. Yeah, 
Especially in, in areas that have heavy rips. Mm. I mean, you can spot a rip current forming from the air like the second it starts to form. Mm. So if you could just have a drone kind of go over, and I, it kind of sounds kind of comical, but if you just had a bit of a siren or, or a blinking light over it, imagine how many people would just prevent going in the water there. Yeah. When I used to do ocean rescue, it was, it was like all day everyone getting stuck in the same rip. Yeah, it was one of, watching that video of the drone fly out and drop the, the, the inflatable to the two guys was one of those, oh, this is such an obviously really smart uh, leapfrog forward in lifeguard technology. Yeah. yeah. It does risk kind of cutting the number of lifeguards you have on the beach out there. What do you mean? Potentially in the future. It's like replacing factory workers with robots. We're all going to get placed with yeah, robots. Yeah, it's going to happen Tommy. anyway. <laughs> it's, yeah, you're, you're, you're farting into a hurricane with that argument. All you can do is you can hope for your kids that they go into a profession which is going to be replaced by AI last. That's all you can do. Mm. I mean, I think that with this, there will always be the need still for there to be a pilot. Yeah. You know, for, for somebody that understands the beach and understands the problems to be the pilot on hand to fly the drone out. And even then, like what this does is, is this helps those people that are still conscious, that are still able to self-rescue once you get a buoy to them. Yeah. Um, and there's still going to be a ton of situations where you still need to send the lifeguard into the water. Don't get me backup. wrong, it's, it's incredibly efficient. You'll, you know, you won't need to have people sitting on the beach. They can be on call because they can be given more time to do these rescues if you know, people had dropped inflatables and stuff. Mm. So yeah, of course it's good. Yeah. On the subject of science and surfers, there you go. Look at all these like we haven't touched on science yet. Look at all these little <laughs> transitions. Um, <laughs> we we mentioned in a previous episode quite a long time ago a uh, study that was being done in the UK with Surface Against Sewage being behind it, which I believe was called a, the Butts on the Beach Study. Was it the Beach Bum Study? Or Beach Bum Study or something like that? They they were taking swabs from surfers' bum holes to test for levels of, of antibiotic-resistant bacteria. For, for, for the listeners, Harry really just acted that out. He oh. just mimed it for us yep. as he said it, yeah, yeah, which, when, help, which was really helpful. Before. It was the creepy <laughs> smile on my face as I was acting it out that was just a bit weird. Yeah, but <laughs> as you led into that, I was thinking like, oh, yeah, I'm all for that. I'd like to maybe participate in this study. But as you as you did the hand gesture, <laughs> yeah, if, I, I don't know if I want to participate. <laughs> yeah, because now anyway. I imagine Harry doing it. <laughs> yeah, with the same creepy smile. Anyway, uh, the results of that study have now been published um, and they've gone up and they are finding higher levels of antibiotic resistant bacteria in surf the surfer population, which uh, leads to lots of questions about how and where and why uh, this bacteria is present in the water. And that's a study done by my old university. Is it? Mm -hmm. Oh, very cool. University of Exeter. I did notice that the all the headlines, and this was covered in IFL Science and Time Magazine, I think, covered it as well. Mm -hmm. But all of the headlines were the same thing, which was um, antibiotic-resistant E. coli found to be three times higher in surfers. Mm -hmm. That was basically the headline that you saw everywhere. And there was a couple of things about that. First of all, there wasn't any mechanism purported by either the researchers or any of the articles that I could find mm -hmm about why there would be higher levels of antibiotic-resistant bacteria as opposed to just all bacteria. Or mm -hmm. may maybe they were just saying all bacteria and antibiotic bacteria was just up in proportion to all the other bacteria. I, I couldn't understand that. The other thing was the whole study was only done on 300 people mm. in total. So there was 150 non-surfers and 150 surfers. There were a lot of people that felt a lot like Asher. I want to help, but... I want to help, but I'll sit this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and 
so the difference was 3% to 9% of 150 people. So that's like the difference between five people and 14 people, which isn't that many people. But it's certainly, yeah. it's not enough to say um, that this is a fact that, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria is three times higher in surface. Like at the very best, it should be, we have found this very small preliminary study and it is prompting us to do more research. But it's definitely, I mean, you know, we've talked about this on the show before, like pretty much any time any study prompts a scary sounding headline or an amazing sounding headline, mm -hmm. it's definitely not true because all any one study does is just nudge the needle very slightly mm -hmm. in one direction. Now, having said that, I don't think that this isn't a really important area to study. And I'm, I'm not, I don't think it's implausible that the findings, that the headlines aren't true, but just that isn't what this study shows yet. Yeah. But, you know, antibiotic resistant bacteria is like this huge, big problem that's facing us as a species that you just don't hear that much about. Because again, it's, it's not a headline grabbing thing. It's like the slow problem that is just creeping up on us mm -hmm. a little bit like climate change. Doctors are just prescribing more and more antibiotics and more and more bacteria is evolving to become resistant to them. And uh, there's a lot of scientists that say that within a few decades, you just won't be able to get effective antibiotics that work. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like an arms race. There's a lot of researchers working on better antibiotics and different ways of fighting bacteria. And it's not a foregone conclusion that will win. And it, it's perfectly plausible that in 50 years time, people will be dying of things that yeah, back, bacteria-related illnesses that right mm -hmm. now we just cure with a course of bacteria, uh, antibiotics. On a separate thing, and noting Tommy's current illness, do you see they've started doing human tests in the universal flu vaccine? Oh, for listeners, Tommy's a bit sick in the corner. Yeah. We're all sitting a bit away from him, and that's also why he's being quite quiet. <laughs> <laughs> got a bit of a cough for that. Yeah. Tom, you've been sick for like a month. It's two weeks. It's since the first day back at work. So you're, you're probably in 50 years' time, you'd just be dead. We yeah, would just, we'd yeah. leave you for dead outside. There'll be an AI robot. Just, yeah, just a drone <laughs> flying over you going, leave this one. <laughs> you're listening to the Surf Simply podcast. So earlier this month, news broke that Quicksilver's parent company, Board Riders Inc., would be purchasing Billabong in a merger of the surf industry's two most iconic brands. Mm -hmm. So at first, when I saw this news, I, I, was, I was pretty sad about it, right? You know, growing up uh, in the heat of the Andy Irons-Kelly Slater rivalry, it was like Quicksilver and Billabong were kind of always these two clashing rivals. You know, you either had uh, the red wave and mountain on the front of your board or, or, or the Billabong black. Yeah, I mean, the, those two and I guess Rip Curl. Mm -hmm. But I feel like when, certainly when I was growing up, like Rip Curl was a much smaller thing. They didn't have, yeah, of course. there wasn't, I'm trying to think who who would have been riding for Rip Curl back in that day, but but I don't remember Rip Curl being a, a big. Well, Tom Curran was the big icon of Rip Curl. Yeah, and then he I was. feel like when we went into the Andy Kelly era, it was almost like Billabong was Andy Irons, Quicksilver was Kelly Slater, and their competition was the embodiment of of, of the two companies' rivalry. Yeah, and do y'all remember in the ASP days when? Quicksilver and Billabong basically owned all the events on tour. You know, it was the Quicksilver Pro Gold Coast and then the Billabong Pro Tahiti and mm. then the Quicksilver Pro France and then the Billabong Pro Spain. Uh, it, it was almost like they came in and just bought up all the pieces on the ASP Monopoly board. And all, and all of the events were sponsored by those companies long enough that they really became like the Quickie Pro, you know, mm -hmm. or the Billabong Pipe Masters. They were... The, the names, maybe this is just a, an artifact of my age and how impressionable I was at the time, but I felt like the sponsorship of those contests was intrinsically linked to the contest and the location. Yeah. Whereas now it feels like 
every few years the the sponsor of a contest is changing so you know it's the fiji contest i've got no idea who's sponsoring it this year kind of thing yeah you know what i mean but maybe that's just me getting older um, yeah that was at a time when you know surf big brands were like a, a very popular thing for surfing and perhaps those ones withstood the test of time whereas the other brands kind of didn't and now we're back to home brands and maybe i mean i think it's always it, right from the i mean not the start of surfing but, but you know the, the the start of the modern era of surfing there have been big brands and they, they, they've shifted and, and changed and if you go back to the 60s and 70s it was the board makers like bing and hobie and alter if you go a little bit further on it became some of the, the brands that were making wetsuits and, and and surf clothing and that's kind of stuck all the way through and then now it's becoming a bit harder to narrow down like who the controlling companies are but i feel like through the 80s and 90s it was definitely the surf clothing and through the 80s it was those brands like uh gotcha and no fear and they kind of faded away a little bit and in came quicksilver and billabong as the as the two big rival companies yeah i, th- I think the key word you use there is big brands because although we're really nostalgic about you know Quicksilver versus Billabong even sitting in this room right now these are really big corporations and although we have emotional ties to them um, they haven't really represented the core surf industry for a pretty long time like long story short Quicksilver has been publicly traded since 1986 and Billabong since early 2000 and at the end of the day like by definition, a publicly traded company exists for one sole purpose, and that's maximizing shareholder value. That is one of the ugliest sentences in the English language. <laughs> yeah, maximizing <laughs> shareholder uh, value. Yeah. But at it, like, the end yeah, it of the day... It makes me like, slightly sick in the back of the throat, just to say it. <laughs> but since 1986, that's what man- management's job has been. It's basically, if I own a little piece of the Quicksilver pie all of their decisions should be directed at making my little slice of the pie uh, as valuable as possible. In the short term. Yeah. Because, I mean, that's, that's the thing. It's that, that, that sort of maximizing shareholder value is all, all kind of runs on that annual, or if you're, if you're lucky as a very progressive, far-sighted CEO, maybe biannual. But you can't be looking at, hey, I want this company to be this in 10 years' time. Yeah, and I think well, it, basically that's, that's a management problem. Um, Management should be looking about maximizing value over the long term, but most of the time it, it is over the short term because they want to bump up the value of of the shares of the of the stock and and, and, and it has to be like that and i'm not and, and just to be clear on what I was saying before i 'm not critical of any person involved in that management structure mm-hmm. the shareholders the CEOs the, any level of management it 's just the system requires that the motives are all in this one place and, and i don 't think that that is the um, the best way to create really inspiring companies. Of course, and and I think that is the problem. I mean, protecting the brand image isn't exactly a priority for them. Just getting the the highest sales is. So, as the story goes, you know, in the mid two thousands, just what you said basically occurred. They they became flimsy. In the, in in the mid two thousands, the core consumer of Billabong and Quicksilver stopped being interested in their product and. Something that I thought was a bit ironic is that the lack of interest in Quicksilver and Billabong and basically the segmentation of the surf industry really closely aligned with how surfing segmented as a whole. So by that I mean in the 90s, everyone basically rode what the pros rode, right? Other than a few outliers, you rode 
three fin short boards or in the 80s you rode twin fins right in the 90s and in the 80s you basically just purchased from one of the big brands and as we moved into the 2000s now surfers had a ton of different things to identify with they could grab a longboard they could grab a fish they could grab a million things in between and in the same line that now there was a lot of different brands to appeal to you you know if i was a bit edgier i could go with a volcom um, companies like Ruka were appearing. So the consumer had a lot more choice. Is it also as a result of the industry growing and awareness of surfing growing and growing and growing, you know, with new technology, the internet, that kind of stuff, therefore enabling people to kind of identify their own surf cultures in terms of where they're living, but also in terms of, you know, how it fits with their lifestyle and the, the kind of trends that they're into as well? Yeah, well, I think it's probably a function of just surfing as a sport growing. So. Yeah. More people surfing are looking for more things that work for them well. And, and now it's just the same way that we're saying, you know, I identify with this brand, or I identify with that brand. You know, I surf these style of waves, I want to get that one, or, you know, I identify with this. I think it's probably just a product of the whole, the whole thing growing. So I know very little about um, finance and economics, but in terms of that, with more and more people being aware and being interested and involved with surfing, there is potentially more money going in, but it's becoming less concentrated towards these big brands and it's being spread out more. Yeah, so uh, the way I see it happening is, is, is in the 2000s, the core consumer moved away. And remember, we said that the managers of these companies are just trying to make their, they have to protect the bottom line. So instead of emphasizing, you know, the quote-unquote cool surf shops, these big brands are now going to look at department stores, you know, and they're going to look at high-volume retailers. And that, once again, that does great in the short term. You get yourself in a Belks, you can now sell, you know, a bazillion t-shirts. But fashion comes and goes, and as soon as they lose those core consumers and the people that were buying it in the first place, that's their backbone fashion seasonal seasonal so uh, belks might just not put the order in again so when they did lose cool to the surfers as soon as the seasonal trends left and that happened in the mid 2000s they were left with a really tough situation so i want to say that by 2013 billabong stock was trading for literal pennies it was like it was penny stock and um quicksilver went into default they went for bankruptcy uh, just because there wasn't that interest anymore. So they they did make that gamble, just like you said, on, on having the highest profits now and forewent profits later. So so how, how is this merger structured and how does it resolve that problem potentially? So what happened is when these companies, when Quicksilver and Billabong weren't worth very much, uh, Oak Tree Financial, which is they specialize in, in asset management and distressed investing, they come in and buy up all the shares. And basically, Oak Tree says, you, you don't have enough cash to meet your liabilities. I have cash. I come in and I take over the company with the idea that I can run your company better than you can and that I can actually make this profitable uh, in the future. So that's what happened in the early 2010s. So we could have seen this merger coming. I mean, the same financial institution owns both. The way that they're restructuring it now with the merger is they're looking for cost savings. So I'm going to keep my Billabong and I'm going to keep my Quicksilver, but I lose, you know, I had two HR departments before. I had two set of managerial compensation packages. I had, you know, two buildings that I have to pay for. So 
they're going to keep their brands because they, they still think that Quicksilver appeals to somebody and Billabong appeals to somebody. Mm-hmm. But I have to pay all that backroom stuff only once. So that's the consolidation. And I mean, you're still going to see Billabong and, and Quicksilver in stores, but it really is now. It's like that kind of heartless corporate. Yeah. So how far back was it when, who did Oak Tree acquire first, Billabong or Quicksilver? Um, Oak Tree acquired Quicksilver and I want to say uh, maybe 2013, 2014. Okay, and then when did Oak Tree acquire Billabong? Uh, they, well, they did it in different ways. So Oak Tree basically just bought Quicksilver forthright. They, they went bankrupt. So yeah. they came in and put up the capital that they owned the majority share and they actually took them off the stock market. Right. So they weren't publicly traded anymore. Okay. The way that they took over Billabong was they didn't go bankrupt per se, but their shares were trading so low that they went and took the majority position. Right, so so, so they acquired 51%. Yeah, so they owned Quicksilver first, mm-hmm. uh, then they bought the majority of Billabong, and then they went in and actually made the the, the inked deal right. in so, January that I own you. Right, so they've, they've now finalized that they own both companies and they're just going to bring the back rooms together. Yeah, and now it's in the corporate structuring rather than just... I own a certain percentage of each. The irony of it is, I think, that the, the problem that Billabong and Quicksilver have both had is, is probably uh, the perception of the brands by the surfing public. Mm-hmm. And knowing that the two brands have merged and are now really just shell companies and that, you know, it's really one thing underneath, that, that's going to just make that problem even worse. Oh, absolutely. I, I assume what... Uh, Oak Tree is betting on is they're going to save so much money through through the consolidation that they'll be able to to make up for that difference. So, and, and do you think that it seems to me that they're probably if they haven't done this already, they're probably moving away from surfers and what they're trying to be now is the surf brand for people who don't surf. Absolutely, but like they, Hollister. Yeah, like they're they're closing their flagship market or their flagship stores in in surfy areas and they're gonna try to just i think yeah, yeah do online retail to, to kind of kind of in like the midwest they're gonna be the clothing version of that song by dick dale yeah. you know it's like the surfer music for people <laughs> that don't surf sort of thing if they're closing their stores do you think we might be able to get hold of that surfboard train from the the one in france oh, oh that really is like cool that. yeah if you go into the quicksilver shop in in hoscore listeners they have oh, i seen Cabraton actually, yeah. isn't it? And they have the they have all of these surfboards kind of going in a train all the way around the roof. Must be like a I don't know, like a few hundred surfboards. I don't but know. Yeah, it's a couple of hundred maybe. But it's anyway, it's super cool. Yeah. Yeah. Is this a good thing or a bad thing? You know, it, it's a wash. You know, for surfers, it, there's a lot of big corporations out there, and I don't know. It, it's not necessarily one or the other, and it, it's just kind of where do you want to spend your money? I mean, all, all of this makes me feel like this is us waving goodbye to Quicksilver and Billabong as, as the brands they once were, which is kind of sad. But then, you know, there are these moments like the the Quicksilver contest at Waimea Bay a couple of years ago. You know, I mean, it's, for me, that still feels very recent. That was when it was massive and just one of the best surf contests of all time. I mean, not part of the, the, the tour, obviously, but an amazing contest and some, something like that happens and you're suddenly like those that brand is right back in your face again as right at the core of what surfing is all about so I, I feel like we're waving goodbye to them but who knows maybe there'll be suddenly an epic billabong pipe masters and billabong will put some money into some young kids coming along i guess it'll all be one homogenized billabong slash quicksilver trip or team camp or whatever for kids nowadays but quick, quick bong 
Quick bong, there you go. <laughs> we need to get those kids on the quick bong program. <laughs> There's actually the last time I was surfing Malibu, there was a guy, there were these guys selling shirts that had the Quicksilver logo and the Bill Wong logo and the Rip Curl logo cut next to each other. So it just said quick bong rip, <laughs> which I thought was pretty amazing. It's pretty funny. That sounds like a classic Bali t-shirt. Good news is when something like this happens, they typically sell off a bunch of assets. So I, I think, Rue, your quiver is big enough now that we could set up the conveyor belt in your living room. <laughs> just have boards going around at all times. That'd probably be a nice party feature. for. I've just ordered a new board and I've realized that uh, podcast recording schedule is sufficiently infrequent and my board purchases are becoming sufficiently frequent that I could almost have a regular feature yeah, called you could. what board have you bought this episode. Yeah. <laughs> and actually for this episode, I've just ordered a Bing dart round pin, 511. Very nice. Kind of like a real classic looking board, but it's actually kind of a fairly, nearly a performancey shortboard. It's got kind of like a bit of volume up by the nose, like a little... 70s gun but more of a conventional shortboard hull and round tail on it i'm pretty excited i'm becoming increasingly envious of the surfboards <laughs> you have downstairs this this next piece that i wanted to do is inspired by a couple of things actually while we we're on a, a break and not really doing much i was um filling my day as i often do by bouncing around youtube from link to link to link but um there's a, a youtube channel that i follow which is uh, i think the channel name is just tested is that one of the guys off Mythbusters? Yeah, so it's it's um, Adam Savage, who's one of the original guys from Mythbusters. They, they were running a podcast for a while, and I think they still do, and it's it's kind of techy, geeky things, and then playing around and keeping themselves entertained. And Adam Savage does loads of these cool like little one-day builds where he goes in and, and makes and creates stuff, and I love it. I feel like you and Adam Savage would get on very well if you were hanging out. You'd spend a lot of days like tinkering yeah, in the possibly. garage. Yeah, Possibly. Um, but the, anyway, the, they did a, a series. They got their, their five or six kind of core presenters to all do a, a quick video in the new year of the, the five things they were most pleased to have acquired during 2017. And whether they were, you know, things that they'd bought or things that they'd been given or, or, or you know, gifts and whatever. And I actually had, uh, yeah, I think it was about a year. I think it was about a year ago now. Someone on my Facebook feed posted something really similar and said, you know, oh, what's the what have you bought in the last year that's like really changed your life? And I thought, actually, that's kind of cool. Like, quite often we go through and we buy things because we need them in the moment, and then they become part of our lives, and we just kind of forget about them. And maybe if somebody else asks, we mention them and go, oh, you should definitely buy that because it's really cool. But I've, there's quite a few things that I've acquired over the last 12 months that, that have really, I've really enjoyed using and have really like made my life easy. So I thought I would go through those. And if you guys wanted to, to throw in anything that you've got, then, then go for it. Are you going to give us a top three in reverse order? I'm not going to give you a top three in reverse order because they're, they're, they're slightly um, in categories, maybe a little bit. So the first thing, um, we are a, a surfing podcast, so I thought I should probably do, uh, especially given just, my... We're, we're just, just on the borderline of being podcast. a surfing podcast. Um, given especially mine and Rue's penchant for uh, acquiring surfboards, I thought that we, I should probably throw a surfboard in there. Uh, and actually, the surfboard I'm going to do is not one of mine, weirdly. Um, so the surfboard that I've chosen is some boards that we had made for the Surf Simply Resort, but I designed them. It was a really fun little concept that we went through. I think we mentioned it on the podcast when we when we got the, the boards in a couple of months ago. But kind of approaching, we use a lot of long boards as as coaching boards just because they're they're high volume and they're relatively stable. But but a, a nine foot plus long board is not the easiest design board 
to necessarily teach certain skills on. I think there's a reason for that. I think there's a reason why a lot of the entry level uh, and lower intermediate level surfboards that you see around are as long and as narrow as they are. And the reason is that they're based on the nose riding surfboards of yesteryear. Well, mm. or, or of today, if you're mm -hmm. Asher and I. We'll yeah. come to that conversation this morning, in the really. <laughs> this morning, yeah. No, but they're, they're based on those nose rider boards. Mm. But actually, when you're an entry-level surfer, you're level two or even a level three surfer, and you want that volume, you're not riding a board primarily for nose riding. You're riding your board primarily for angling your takeoff, trimming up and down the wave, performing horizontal cutbacks, starting to float over sections. And a long, thin board that's like 9.6 or 10.2 by like 22 inches wide and, and, not, and not very thick, Like that, that's not the optimal shape. Yeah. But... The, again, the culture has kind of um, whipped the rug out from underneath a whole generation of surfers by giving them a board that isn't optimal. And I, and I think what you've done, and actually Eric Antonsen, who I was talking to recently, has done the same thing for stand-up paddle boards, and you've both come up with an almost identical design. I was looking mm. at his boards the other day. Um, what you've done is you've created a board that is actually ideal for someone who needs the volume of an entry-level surfer, but is not yet trying to nose ride yeah uh, and it's and it's it's just it works brilliantly i would put it up there with uh with drones dropping floaties for people out in the water in terms of uh, light bulb moments. well that's very kind I, i'm not sure i'd put it quite that high up but i have been very pleased with how they performed and it's been it's been really gratifying for me as a human being uh you know when clients go out and have a really good session and we've had a couple of people that have really enjoyed them and have then asked how they can get hold of them and we've we've given them the CAD files that they can take back to shapers in the US. Lots of clients really, really love this board and want to buy this board or want to have this board shape. Yeah, so uh, anyone else bought a board that's kind of really changed their, their life this year? Yeah, I, um, I've joined the Surf Simply uh, Twin Fin Movement yeah. and I got one of the uh, Rob Machado Go Fishes. Um, I've always thought that surfing a twin fin looks particularly easy um, and it looks stylish, not very exciting to me. I've now had a go and it's not easy at all. So um, yeah, I'm going to be working with Harrison and Derek and just trying to get our heads around this twin fin thing. Very cool. Very cool. I think you guys are, are putting a bit of a, a feature together for the yeah. podcast in the future. Yeah, is, is, that, is that the first uh, like proper twin fin that you've owned as opposed to a sort of fish-like shortboard? That is the first twin fin I've surfed. Other yeah. than once trying to stand up on ashes <laughs> that I couldn't so, stand up on. So my board on my list, well, the two boards was my, my nose rider, which I, I've talked about a lot on the show before, and I, I won't talk about it now more, but uh, I bought a Christensen twin fin as well. And I hadn't owned one before, so I was surfing it regularly enough to really get my head around it. And I, exactly the same as you. I just, I didn't know how much I didn't know about surfing that kind of board. I didn't know how much speed it could have without that middle fin in mm -hmm. and with the shape of the bottom of the board. And I didn't know that you could craft these long carving turns, but you just had to do it very differently. You had to hold the rail for much longer, much smoother and aim for different you know just slightly different targets on the wave at slightly different times and i love that you don't rush stuff you know one of the ugliest things that i think in surfing is when you see people riding a shortboard and trying to force all their turns by jerking their upper body round. Mm -hmm. and i love how with the twin fin you can't do that because either the board slips away from under you or over rotates so everything becomes really smooth and it, yeah it's just it's 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 so fun yeah i i, I honestly i think the twin fins and we've talked a lot of, of, about boards that we thought were uh, 
going to help you progress your surfing. But I think twin fins are so useful for someone who is a competent surfer because it, it is quite a difficult uh, design to surf. You know, if, you, if you're still progressing through that level two, level three, um, actual learning the maneuvers, it's there's it's going to add extra variables that are going to make it very hard for you to master that maneuver. But once you have the maneuvers and you're trying to polish off the, the middle stuff, so the linking of the maneuvers, how far you're actually taking them, um, I think it's just so hugely beneficial to your surfing. It takes out the need to pump a lot in between your turns, which is very aesthetically pleasing, but it teaches you to use your rail a lot more through your turns it, rather than pushing on the fins, which is a very easy trap to fall into with three fin surfboards. So yeah, I, I, I cannot highly recommend it enough. And that's actually been my favorite surfboard of the year too. I, I've spent a lot of time on twin fins, but this year I got one made off a, an original Steve Liss template. It's pretty much the same one that was designed originally. The only change is a little bit in the rail shape and the bottom contours. Uh, and it's been so much fun getting my head around that and trying to, to, to figure it out. Very cool. So my second item, I did get a longboard this year. And so I got some fins to play around with it. I wasn't totally sure what fins to get. Me and Asher spent a lot long time looking at fins. But I got two of the FCS two longboard templates that that you can just pop in and pop out and i love it number one because i can store you know longboard's quite a big bulky item and for me to be able to put it in a rack with the fin in actually would be a bit of a pain and so the fact that whenever i take it home i just pop the fin out put it in the rack and it sits against the wall really really nicely just just makes my life a lot easier but then secondly I'll go down to the beach, I'll have a look at the conditions and I just keep both fins in the, uh, you know, in that like pocket behind the driver's seat on a car. I just have my two longboard fins in there and then I drive to the beach with no fin in the board, have a little look at it and then I've got a, a hatchet fin and I've got a big sort of raked flow fin and uh, I, I have a look and I decide which one I want to put in. I pop that fin in and I go and enjoy my session and I really, I, I really enjoy that concept. I think it's great. I thought you were going to say you've developed a holster where you can keep one fin <laughs> under your arm. That would be pretty cool and pop it out and change it mid-session. No. So for, just for listeners, Harry has made himself a utility belt, which he attaches kits to when he's swimming out and doing surf photography. Actually, I think that I do need to say at this point that I had a very bad attempt at stowing together a utility belt, which didn't really work very well. And your girlfriend, Maureen, very kindly took it away from me one day and came back the next day having beautifully sewed it all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes I uh, always I can't whenever I see you running down the beach with your utility belt I can't help but think he could just hold that stuff in his hands and not have a utility belt no it's so much nicer not hold, having to hold my swim fins and my helmet and everything like that <laughs> when I'm trying to take take video on the land is there a small part of you that would like to have a, a, a mobile phone holster rather than just put your phone in your pocket no but uh, one of the really cool videos that, that this whole thing being inspired by Tested's videos is uh, Adam Savage made a really cool little thing for the belt clip for a Leatherman, which I really like. <laughs> that looks really cool. <laughs> um, okay, so my next thing, I'm now going to move away from surfing a little bit. Um, the next thing, and we kind of queued it up a little bit actually with, with that comment, is almost a utility belt. <laughs> um, it's very close so when I go home and, and actually you know on vacations I'll quite often go hiking I like going out and, and doing like a long all day hike and can I, I like taking stuff uh, with me I like having a map with me I like having a, you know a rain jacket with me I want to have a little bit of food some water things like that 
but I don't particularly like walking with a backpack on. Uh, my back gets really hot and sweaty. My shoulders get really sore. And when I was younger, I used to do the, the whole military cadets thing. And so whenever we'd go off and do the exercise, you'd get given webbing, which that you carry, carry most of the load on the waist. And I've always thought that would be a much better idea for what I'm doing. And so I found a company that makes, it's basically like an oversized bum bag or fanny pack. Yeah, I was about to say, I, I'm oversized. looking at a picture right now and it's just, yeah. a, it's a fanny pack. Well, it, it is, that, can, it I, can I just refer to one of yeah. my favorite lines out of any surf movie? Yeah. I can't remember the name of the movie. It's Bruce Irons, Rye Craig, and Dane Reynolds. Uh, it was um, it's the DC film. Dude Cruise. Dude, Dude, Dude Cruise, yeah. Great name. Bruce Irons is laughing at Dane Reynolds' fanny pack and then Dane Reynolds goes, the only thing I think is funny is that you don't have a fanny pack. <laughs> yeah, I'm with Dane. I'm with Dane. No, so so this thing, it is a fanny pack, but it's it's big. It's like nine litres. Wait, wait, wait. Um, a nine litre fanny pack? Yeah. So it's, pre- it's pretty big. Uh, the, the, the waistband on it is like the waistband on a hiking rucksack. Oh, I need to see a picture of this. Yeah, this I, you're, you're not selling this at all. No, it's in no way. Oh, shape. it looks it looks exactly like what I thought it looked like when you described it. Yeah, it's okay. So for the listeners, what I'm looking at right now, it's like a like a backpacking backpack, but on your butt. Yeah. <laughs> you need to have uh, an exceptionally <laughs> protruding butt. For, yeah, I was in order about to for say to stay to stay attached. To all you. right, a quick question. So, what is the advantage of the spanny pack over a small <laughs> external frame backpack? Function over fashion here. Okay, I want to ask you a question, Asher. You, you're 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 walking into a bar with this guy, and he's wearing his his uh, extra large fanny pack, and you know, and you you see some some attractive ladies across the room, and. Do you distance yourself from this guy or do, no, no. You, do you highlight your friendship with him? I feel like I, the key is going to be to really embrace <laughs> the fanny pack. Because it's like, it's, it's like looking at it, it's, pretty, it's a pretty beefy, like this is a piece of gear. Like this isn't a novelty fluoro 80s no. roller skating on the beach. And let's just remind pack. ourselves that Harry is not pointing this out as a, as a comedic item. No. He's pointing out as a number two life-changing purchase of two. I think we're on number we're on number three right now. But, but honest <laughs> question, what what's the advantage of this over a small external frame backpack? Okay, yeah. so the advantage or a nice hipster messenger bag. Okay, so the advantage is when I go off on a nice hike, once that's on and it's all properly adjusted, it's it's not just a fanny pack. There there is a bunch of straps to get it like stable on 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 your hips. You're carrying all the weight on your hips instead of on your shoulders. So when you've then walked for eight or nine miles, your shoulders aren't being like pulled out of shape by all the weight hanging back off them. Like a good a good long distance hiking pack should have a waistband on it anyway, and you should be carrying most of the weight through your waist and your hips, not on your shoulders. The second is, as you're walking around, if you do have a backpack, even if you're carrying the weight on your waist, they tend to get very hot and sweaty. And you look at the advertising for any backpack and it talks about all the, the features designed to get airflow up your back so you're not getting hot and sweaty. This thing doesn't do that because it sits down on the on the lower back. Aren't I, you just going to get a sweaty <laughs> butt though? <laughs> like now you're going to get an extra sweaty bum, which is the highest on the echelon of where you know it's sweat. It sits above your bum. It's it's sitting in, in the lower back there. So it's above your bum, but it's below that like middle bit of your back that's oh, always uh, just like between your shoulder blades, hot and sweaty and nasty. Okay, my fellow podcasters, there's four of us here by a show mm-hmm. of hands. Who on the strength of Harry's advertising bit is going to go out and purchase this? Yeah. Raise your hands, please. Yeah. 
I'm not expecting you to. I'm just saying <laughs> there, was a, there was a distinct lack of hands going there up. Was there was a, la- a lack of hands, and I understand that. But do you know, do you know what? Do you know what is cool? And What's I'm that? gonna I'm gonna come back and counter this this extra large fanny plaque for hiking claim in a mm-hmm. few years' time when I go out and I purchase and when it's available one of those AI big dogs. You know those military robots that look. That's a bit just gonna like walk small... beside you, carrying everything. Yeah, maybe even carry me. Yeah, you're not a man that would go for a long distance walk anyway. No. Yeah. No, I, I might at some point. Anyway. Mount Kilimanjaro. Mount Kilimanjaro, yeah. Well, anyway, listeners, look, for any of you that do go out and hike, I thoroughly recommend uh, <laughs> trying one of these things. I will put a link so that you can see how ridiculous I look wearing it. But I found it far more pleasant walking wearing that than I have previously. So there you go. Can I, can I, can I give you my, my number two item? Yeah, please do. So... My name's Sue which I didn't have for that long, and I lost it the other day, which I'm a bit upset about. But I wanted to buy a Fitbit, which I've not used before. Mm-hmm. And I have heard a lot of people talk about how the data is incredibly not accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I wanted to measure two things, like how much I was surfing and how well I was sleeping. I, I've been reading a lot recently yeah. about the importance of sleep hygiene. Mm-hmm. And, and like, long story short, if you don't sleep enough, it correlates really heavily with dying a lot earlier. And as we mentioned, I really want to push through until I can be downloaded. Yeah. So uh, I really wanted, and, and one of the things about not sleeping well enough is that if you get insufficient sleep, either in at its length or its quality, for more than a few weeks, then you're, you stop feeling tired. So there's no self-correcting mechanism. You know, if you sleep four hours a night, pretty soon you'll be fine sleeping four hours a night. You won't get tired. It's not a problem, but you just got to drop down dead 20 years before you would have otherwise. Mm-hmm. So having really good sleep hygiene is important. So I wanted to measure that and I wanted to, you know, quite often I get to the end of the day and, and I live like 100 meters from the surf here and I'm working in my office here and I o- often get to four o'clock and I've got loads of work to do, but then I'm almost like, I always have loads of work to do. And if I always don't surf because I'm going to try and finish my work, then in 20 years time, I'll, I'll have not been surfing any afternoon. So mm-hmm. it's one of those times where you have to stand back and, and really make a life choice right then at four o'clock every afternoon. Uh, so I wanted to measure my, my time in the water. And, you know, with a Fitbit, uh, well, there's nothing you can really do that with. But I thought I'd try it with a Fitbit because it's waterproof. And you can set it to measure steps. You can set it to measure aerobic exercise. And I I tried with both of them. And I did find for the, I think I used it for about three weeks. I did find that it was pretty accurately not measuring the amount of time I was surfing, but it was a really good comparison from one day to the next. So the days when I was surfing more, the steps weren't going up that much, but the aerobic exercise was going up. And then the days when I couldn't surf for whatever reason, I would really see it drop off. Mm -hmm. So I, I found it a really good way of just measuring both my sleep and how much time I was in the water. So yeah, Fitbit. I might, I might even buy another one. Very cool. My number one best item of the year is related to sleep as well. Um, I'm, I'm a big sleep fan. When you say that I could train myself to sleep four hours a night, I just cannot imagine ever. <laughs> that is like an impossible idea in my brain because I, I demand eight hours of sleep a night. Um, but there was just a hotel built behind me and they built their courtyard really really close to my bedroom which has this giant window in it and the lights go all night and it was killing my sleep because the lights just shine straight into my bedroom and last time I was in the states I bought the thickest blackout curtains I could find and they it was the best purchase I've ever made like not only do I not get the light in my bedroom anymore but it traps all the cold in my room and it keeps my room way colder than before 
Oh, that's so, a pretty nice move. I did yeah. not expect to ever in my life enjoy curtains as much as I enjoy these curtains. <laughs> number one purchase of the year. Very cool. Very cool. All right. Well, uh, I'm going to roll into my next one, and I'm going to sort of follow you Rue, a little bit, and I'm going to go electronic on this one. So the next thing is I, like, we we end up traveling quite a bit. We end up on planes and trains and automobiles. You wanted to say automobiles so badly, though, didn't did. you? I just had to follow. Um, anyway, and, and I listen to a lot of podcasts. I listen to a lot of music when I'm traveling around, and I've always just had whatever headphones are lying around. I've never done anything special with it. And I thought... I would try uh, this whole noise cancelling thing, and um, not not for every day, like not for the, the the headphones that I, you know, use day to day. But when I'm travelling and I'm sitting on airplanes, and I've always been aware that it's probably a lot nicer sitting on an airplane with with noise cancelling headphones. The last flight I did. Oh, I will never travel without noise cancelling headphones again. <laughs> it's amazing. I had the same thing last year. I bought some of those Bose Quiet Comfort noise cancelling headphones. And yeah, it's it's incredible. It's like some, there's black magic inside those headphones. Yeah. You press the button, magic happens, and the whole world just goes away. Yeah, well, I I didn't get the Bose ones, but I got I got some that are. I think on Amazon there's about two or three different ones that are. They look very similar to the Bose ones. They work very similar, and they get very good reviews, but they're, without they're, having to spend quite the same amount of money as Bose. They probably are as good. There is a huge community of people online who hate Bose and think they're very overrated. Well, any, anyway, so I'm sure, I'm sure your headphones these ones were very strongly reviewed on Amazon. Um, I, I'll, I'll put a link into them. They're, they're, they're made by a company called Lindy. But um, yeah, sat on the plane, pressed the little button, and it was just amazing. Like suddenly all that noise from the plane went away. Uh, this one's got a cable that you can plug in or not have plugged in. So I have them Bluetooth to my uh, phone when I'm just listening to podcasts. But I can plug them into the, the airplane seat when I want to watch the movies on the plane. Love also, for any listeners who have been following US politics, if you actually wear these with the noise cancelling turned on while you're watching the news, it's it you can't makes, hear the news. Makes the whole thing a lot more manageable. <laughs> yeah, it's very nice. The problem is now you're ruined for life uh, with noise cancelling headphones. So the last time I was in the states, I, I my flight out of Florida was really really early in the morning, and I left my pouch of Bose earbud na- noise cancelling headphones in my girlfriend's car oh, and I now do not have my noise cancelling headphones and I'm in a world of pain. So do you use them normally? Because I don't, day to day, those headphones, they just sit in my in my bedside table and I don't really use them at all. Well, I have a neighbor who is ah. quite the drummer. Ah. <laughs> He's an enthusiast of the percussions. So That is antisocial to I say do, the least. I do use them <laughs> all right, now that, pretty that's, regularly. That, that's not cool. I mean, that's just not cool. If you live in an apartment building where you're sharing a wall with someone else and you play the drums, you should buy those electronic drums. Yeah. Like, you, yeah, it's of course. not, it in no way is okay to just start smashing out, like... Oh, no, no, no. Definitely not cool. No. But, um, yeah, I, I miss the headphones. Um, this is not something I own, but it's something that's come to the house that I live in. It's a surfboard designed by a guy called Fletcher Schoonard, who I don't know much about, but I'm guessing Asher does. He does all the Patagonia stuff. Yeah, he does boards Son of uh, Yvonne Schoonard, the founder of Patagonia. Yeah, and it's been a a great board for me to... I I never really focused that much on longboarding. It's just always been a fun pastime. Uh, But it's been great to practice nose riding. So I've really enjoyed that. It's it's actually my landlord's board that I've just kind of claimed. There you go. (laughs) Yeah. I have switched podcasts apps 
listeners, I assume you're fans of podcasts, so this is relevant because you are listening to this podcast. I've switched from the Apple Podcasts app to the Outcast app, and you know why it's much better? I like the interface and all the little things a lot, but the big reason is that with the app, there's, there's a lot of podcasts that I subscribe to, and then I only keep the most recent episode. So it, like a lot of long-form interviews, I won't want to hear every interview they do, but I want to see every new episode pop up in my feed, and then I can pick which one I want to listen mm-hmm. to. And with the Apple Podcast app, if you don't listen to three or four in a row, it stops downloading them. Yeah. And that really annoys me. So I switched. That was why I switched over to the Outcast app. And you, you have to pay like I don't know five bucks to get the ad-free version. But uh, it's really good, and uh, that has cool. that has drastically improved my podcast consumption. And the other thing, my last one, quick one, for my birthday, my wonderful life partner Marine bought me a custom motorbike, which is possibly the coolest bike i've ever seen it is so cool and i all agree that's a very cool motorcycle and, and let me just be very clear here i am not cool riding it <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's very much the bike that is cool and um and i i've ridden like i used to have a quad and also one of those little honda wave scooters is my primary mode of transport for a really long time but i've never owned a motorbike and my brother-in-law's really into bikes a lot of you guys are really into bikes and i've just it's been one of those things that i've just never it's never got me and when I, when I got it, I looked at it and I was like, oh, that is super cool. And we'd been eyeing it up in the, in the shop in Aloalei, the, the shop here. And I thought, oh, this is really cool. But I was kind of a bit scared. I thought, what if I ride it like once or twice and then I'm just not really into it and then I'll feel really bad because Marine bought me this beautiful present and I'm not riding it that much. And oh my God, something has been like awoken inside me that I had no idea was there. And now I'm just like sitting in the house and as soon as Maureen's just like, oh, we're out of milk, I'm like, I'll go to the shop and get it. And I'm downstairs on the bike. (laughs) I've started driving the 200 meters from my house to the resort the wrong way so that I go like the full mile lap of Nosara to arrive at the resort from the other side. Uh, That Yeah, that's been life-changing. Very cool. I know that this can seem, that you know, this feature might seem a little uh, materialistic maybe, but as much as I uh, don't want to go down that route, I am very aware that quite often like things and products open doors to having experiences or having better experiences or enjoying experiences that you're having more. And um, yeah, I just thought it'd be really fun that, you know, that, that these few things that we've picked up over the years that, that have made our life a little bit easier. So I don't know, listeners, if, if you guys have picked up anything, if you've acquired anything over the uh over the last 12 months that has really just changed your life, then maybe get in touch with us. Um, send us an email or, or hit us up on Facebook and let us know what it is and we can uh, maybe share it on the next episode. Perhaps, listeners, you have bought a really life-changing fanny pack. And if so, <laughs> please email a photo of it to harry at surfsimply.com. Yeah, definitely. Here's, here's a bit of, here's a bit of uh, pop psychology for you, uh, mm-hmm. which, is, which is based in good science. So when you purchase an object... The, the most joy you get out of that object is just sort of pretty much a split second before you buy it. Like let's say it's a car. It's just as you are about to drive it out of the showroom. And then pretty much the pleasure you get from that object is, is then peaked and then goes downhill. Every day you walk out of your house and you look at that car in the driveway. It's a little older. It's a little worse. It's got a few more scratches. It's just kind of going downhill a little more and more. If you spend your money on experiences like mm-hmm. uh, a trip somewhere, then... You, you enjoy that trip all the way in the build-up to it. So it's worth buying it. It's actually better value for money to book a vacation a long way in advance because then you have all of that year or two years of looking forward to it, which you know, you're know you getting pleasure for your money. 
then you have the trip and of course you know not every trip is great there may be problems but as time passes you'll forget about the bad bits remember the good bits and the pleasure you get from that trip keeps going up after it's finished so it's much better value to spend your money on experiences rather than objects purely from just that kind of point of view and and I think it's worth noting that some of these objects or some objects that you buy might actually allow you to have experiences so it's not just the objects and experiences thing it's like a when you buy a surfboard there's an object element to it and then there is an experience you get to it as well that was going to be my exception to the rule would be a would be a surfboard yeah or a motorbike or a motorbike yeah you get better and better or you have more and more fun with it yeah but uh, I was talking to a, a, a really nice couple, uh, Phil and Nat, uh, who were guests at Surf Simply and have just recently bought a, a house by the beach here in Nosara. And we were having that same conversation about the house. You know, there's the you own you own the house and you've you've bought it, but then also there's you're buying all of those experiences that you have going forward. Mm-hmm. And I think that that it's a difficult thing to actually find a metric to measure. But I think it's whenever you spend money on something, it's good to just be aware of that. Uh, those those definitions of those different kinds of purchases and, and just kind of have a little bit of an internal dialogue about what it is you're purchasing and why and when is the pleasure going to come from it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and we'll we'll link in the show notes all the uh, all the random materialistic items that uh, that we've mentioned in the last little bit. We will uh, totally we'll, undermining everything I just said. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll link to those in the uh, in the show notes as well. You can't put a number on how much pleasure you get out of a fanny pack. <laughs> you just can't. <laughs> yeah, we all we can agree. <laughs> Uh, okay, so we've got a listener email sent in by Nick Venegas. Uh, first of all, he thanks us for all the great listening content. Good it's start. It's a pleasure, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he says it's probably the best surf content he's ever found. Wow. Excellent. You're Excellent. Us, yeah. There we go. Massaging our egos. That's what we like. On on that subject, actually, listeners, if, if any of you would fancy jumping on um, iTunes or Stitcher or anything like that and, and leaving us a little review, it really it helps other people find it. Not it, it massages our egos, but but the big it thing nudges is it, us up the uh, podcast charts, so we end up being the recommended podcast for surf. people for surf. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, uh, back to Nick's email. Yeah. So he asks us the question. Is it ever acceptable to put a tail pad on a longboard? No. Right. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's not, that's not true. Um, he goes on, interested to see if you think it helps a level two or three surfer. Find the right foot placement over your fins or if it's such a style faux pas, you can't even bear the thought of it. Now, I'm pretty sure we'll have a slightly divided camp here. Um, but I tried to think of potential benefits for, for having a tail pad. I mean, it is worth saying at this point, Tommy, that, that whilst I'm sure listeners are aware that Rue and Asher are both big fans of the traditional longboard, you are quite a fan of the performance, the, the sort of more rockered performance longboard. I don't want to go down as the, uh, the performance guy, but, you know, I'm, I'm open to watching both kinds of surfing. I would probably prefer to have a more performance orientated style out of the two. <laughs> I was going to say that was a backhanded slapdown. Yeah, I'm yeah. not the performance guy. I'm just open. <laughs> I'm just not the closed-minded guy. That's all. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm open to surfing equipment that's less good. I'm open. <laughs> um, I've completely lost where I was. Sorry, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I tried to think of a couple of advantages and disadvantages of of having a surfboard grip, um, and try to think about for. Because he asked specifically about different levels of surfers. So, so can I interject here and just f- for the sake of clarity, make one 
linguistic difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, highlight one linguistic difference, which is that there are traditional longboards, like you know, nose riders, and then there are much more rockered uh, longboards, which are not really designed for nose riding and are more about performing maneuvers. And and I think it, it's misleading to put those into one category because they're two very different kinds of board. I would agree. So we need to answer both those questions separately. Yes. I wholeheartedly agree with that. Advantages for beginners. If you're an entry-level surfer and you're starting to do that exercise where you're walking up and down the board, shuffling, not cross-stepping, in the whitewater, coming in straight in order to stall and accelerate with a view to later on performing carving turns and to negotiating steep drops, it's really useful to have the deck pad there as a tactile clue to when you're reaching mm-hmm. the near the back of the board so you know you're stepping back you're stepping back okay i can feel the deck pad without looking down i know that i'm now 10 12 inches from the tail oh there's the back of the deck pad i know that i'm now three inches from the tail in the white water yeah that's one of my biggest pet peeves in surfing is the name traction pad it like it provides little or no traction the benefit to a traction pad is like you said knowing where your foot is in terms of perhaps level two or level three surfers where they're learning how to carve perhaps longer boards, it's going to be useful in terms of that foot placement and finding when you are on the tail, when you're pressing in the right position to do bigger carving turns. Um, On Nick's question specifically where he's saying, is it helpful for a level two or three surfer um, to find the correct foot placement? I think there are certain situations where, yeah, knowing your foot on the right spot is going to be super useful. But Nick, when you're thinking about this, if you are riding a longboard, so it, pretty much any any board, but specifically when it's eight foot or bigger, you know, you don't want to be thinking of it uh, in binary terms. So you're not going to do all turns from where that traction pad is. Um, there's certain turns that specifically you're going to need a longer turning radius. There's certain turns that you're going to want uh, a really tight turning radius if you're wanting to do more of a 12 o'clock turn uh, or a faded takeoff. Um, just pull up a, a, a longboard video. There's going to be a really good one in the what to watch at the end today. But where these guys are turning from the surfboard uh, changes maneuvers specifically. So I think that's really, really important uh, to have in your mind and kind of uh, pinpoint what maneuver you are looking to do and then think of foot placement from there. Um, and then for more performance longboarders, it's going to be useful for progressive turns, of course. If you look at pictures of Taylor Jensen surfing, and you see him doing those big 12 o'clock turns, his foot is bang on the tail. Um, and it's also useful for duck diving. Having that just little lip to kick on is very, very useful to press on. Other advantages for traction pads or tail pads, with a thinner, more progressive longboards, it's going to protect that tail um, from snapping or from you know having dings in it, uh, pressure dings. So it's going to you know add to the life of the board. Um, to go back to your question at the beginning, is it acceptable to put a tail pad on a longboard? I think that acceptable uh, is a really key word because absolutely it's acceptable. That's that's the cool thing about surfing is it includes everything. You could put traction pad nose to tail if you want um, and go for it if that's something that you, you think you're interested in. I mean, Herbie Fletcher is about the coolest surfer ever and he puts astro deck nose to tail uh tommy witt i think we can all agree is one of our favorite surfers and i actually saw an instagram post of him uh two weeks ago uh that he he has traction pad on the the nose of a couple boards that that herbie sent him for me personally 
I do not like anything extra on my surfboards, I, I, especially when it comes to a longboard. I, I want as little on it as possible. And just because of how many places I'm, I'm turning for and, and, and how little of attraction benefit I think it provides, I personally would never, ever, ever, ever put it on one of my longboards. But whether it's acceptable or not, that's, that's truly your call. So don't worry about whether it's a style faux pas or not. I think the bottom line is that there's no functional disadvantage to having a traction pad on a board. Mm -hmm. So the question you want to ask yourself is, is the advantage that it gives you, given the way you're going to surf that board and what you're going to do on it, uh, greater than any aesthetic compromise in terms of just how good the board looks? Yeah. You know, and it's, you know, and I would say that if, if, for example, at one end of the category, if you had one of those Firewire TJ Pros, which I would say are very high performance longboards, Putting a, a traction pad on there, I mean, that's a board that you're not going to be nose riding. You're definitely going to be doing a lot of longer arcing turns off the tail of the board. The advantage to having a traction pad on there is probably quite high. The aesthetic disadvantage is not that low. If you get, you know, those wooden boards with a with a like a nice one piece black traction pad on there, doesn't look that bad. So I, I would go for it. If you've got like one of those beautiful uh, like Christensen or, or, or Bing surfboards that really kind of gorgeous old ones uh, that are nose riders, you're probably not going to be doing long carving arcs from the tail of the board. So the traction pad advantage isn't going to be that high. And I would argue, and this is totally subjective, that it really makes this beautiful crafted piece of equipment look a lot uglier Agreed. and so i would say very little advantage very big aesthetic compromise which you might not care about and like ashley says it's a personal choice but you know i, it, I would think it's like it's like having a, a phantom silver ghost and then hanging some pink fluffy dice from the wing mirror i'm strong on that um I, on, but on <laughs> or wearing that, a funny pack or wearing a funny the size pack. of a rucksack yeah. when you're hiking yeah there you go again um, function over fashion function over fashion <laughs> so on that subject if um if the the aesthetic uh, feel of, of you know putting putting a big traction pad on the tail there are other alternatives um, one just really simple one it's not a permanent solution but it does work in the short term if you know you're trying to get your foot into a certain position to do a certain maneuver just take half a block of wax roll it in your hands for a little bit or if you're in a cold climate you know maybe stick it in the microwave for 10 seconds just get it nice and soft roll it into a bit of a sausage and then stick it, force it down onto the board so that there's a, a, a really like a, a solid ridge, not, not mm -hmm. just a little bump, but like a really big ridge of wax on the deck of the board. And you can then, whenever you wax the board, you can just wax over the top of it. And it, it should last quite a long time if it's well stuck down. And again, as you walk forwards and backwards, you will feel that, that bump, that ridge to mark whether your foot is or isn't in the right place. And obviously that's aesthetically much less of a mark. There's also two companies that make um, transparent textured traction that can go down on the deck of the board that you can you, you don't even need to wax over the top of them, but it it has a much lower visual impact uh, on the deck of the surfboard. Yeah, and, and just to kind of add on to that, if you have decided that the functional benefit is great to you, and you do put a traction pad on, it's it's not forever. I mean, you could work on these specific drills for a bit take the traction pad off and now challenge yourself to still hit the same spots yeah. of the surfboard without the traction pad. And in the long run, that's going to be really beneficial to you because 
just like we said, your foot isn't going to be in the same place on a longboard for every turn. I, I have a, to that point, I have a Spitfire downstairs that I got in September, which I, uh, Firewire Spitfire, which I've been really enjoying surfing. And I have put a traction pad on and pulled it off twice. And I've just put a new traction pad on it again last night. So yeah, it's not forever. You can you can just take them on and put them off. Why did you pull them off? I I put it I put it on, and the tail of the board is really wide, and the traction pad that I had bought is quite narrow, and it, it looked just really stupid. It looked like a really fat man wearing tiny little round glasses, and I really hated the way it looked. And so I pulled it off, and then I was surfing it just with a waxed tail for ages. And then my foot was like slipping around a little, and I was, I was struggling trying to feel where the tail of the board was, like we were talking about. And so that's why I put it back on again. But then I didn't like that traction pad because of the pattern on it. So that came off and I put another one on. <laughs> there we go. Hey, what, what, do, what do you think about this as a rule of thumb? If you've got a board that's got a thruster setup, like a classic thruster setup tail on it, however long it is, then that might be the kind of board where the function of having a traction pad is going to significantly um, uh, outweigh the, the aesthetic disadvantage of having it. If you've got like a single fin or a twin fin, like a solid colored board with a, with a gloss heavy glassed finish, it, that board is a beautiful board. And the fact that it's a twin fin or a single fin means you're going to be doing turns where a traction pad isn't going to create such a strong advantage. So I would argue those are the boards that maybe you don't want to put one on. Okay, so I mentioned earlier that I just... Uh bought a Rob Machado GoFish. Yeah, so have you got a traction pad on that? It was secondhand and it came with a traction pad on it. Get the thing off there. And what <laughs> I found is that when I do cutbacks and I can't feel the, uh, the kicktail on the side of my foot, mm. I don't make the cutback. The board doesn't respond, it doesn't turn. When I do feel my left foot on that kicktail, the board will turn. That is a specific technical flaw in the turn and nothing to the... To the traction pad so having the traction pad there is helping me do the turn or? no so on a twin fin specifically and i think this is one of the biggest benefits is it's going to teach you to do turns from different parts of the board for example yes yeah if you are surfing a more powerful wave your foot not only sh shouldn't be on the traction pad it can't be on the traction pad because you need to engage a longer rail line so that the tail doesn't slip however if you were situationally if you were surfing that board in small waves where you're not going to overpower it, you might need to pivot to surf the board vertically. So I think you you the feedback you get from that that traction pad wouldn't be very good on a twin. Yeah, I, I, and that's the thing. I think when you have a a sort of a narrow tailed thruster, you, you pretty much put your foot further and further back. Mm -hmm. You wedge it up next to the back of the kick pad, and that's where you're going to get a tighter arc to turn from. But when you're riding wider tailed boards like those twin fin fishes. You know, you almost don't want the traction pad there because you want to move your foot from one side of the board to the mm -hmm. other. It's one of the things I've really enjoyed. It's one of the reasons why my twin fin was, was one of my objects of the year is because now when I do a, a cutback on it, I'll move my back foot, you know, three, three inches over towards the heel rail of the board as if I was riding a longboard. And then I hold it there as I do the cutback all the way around and move it again when I want to turn the other way. And I think a, a tr a, it's not that a traction pad stops you doing that, but I think it... It does detract from it because you tend to always just go back to up against the kicker, feel the arc of yeah. the pad in the middle of your foot. And, that's, and that kind of takes away from how you want to surf those boards. So, yeah, thank you very much, Nick. Thank you for that, um, that question. You can see it provoked quite a lot of uh, chit-chat. If we haven't answered your question, please do write us back. But I think it is totally acceptable to put a tail pad on a longboard. Except when it's not. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
that's about it for this episode. Before we go, we have our what to watches. Uh, Asher, you want to kick us off? So I would, hi- especially on the tail end of that longboard discussion, I would highly recommend y'all go watch Log Rap, which is Devin Howard uh, surfing uh, in California, doing some really, really beautiful uh, longboard surfing. Uh, Devin's one of my favorite guys to watch surf, particularly because I like the way he surfs a traditional longboard with a lot of power. Uh, he's not surfing pivoty. He's not overemphasizing nose riding. I just think it's really aesthetically pleasing surfing. And also very good to notice where his foot is on all his turns. So very cool. Check that out. Uh, Rue? Uh, I'm going to just throw back a second time slightly to episode 50 where we, we did the Island Earth review. And, and I'm only throwing back to it because it actually ended up being our most downloaded episode of all time. But um, there's a movie out called Food Evolution narrated by Neil deGrasse Tyson, which is pretty much the movie the island earth should have been and it's all about big agriculture the problems with it gmos uh, healthy eating all of that stuff except that this one has got the science absolutely nailed so if you if you'd okay. like to see a, a documentary that was that was the film that i would have liked to have seen made um that's that's really got the science right i think that's a really good one i think it's the only there's so many movies out there and and tv shows now out there that have got the science wrong when it comes to food and Mm. this is the only one i've come across that i think's got it right so food evolution tommy uh yeah to move us back to surfing i've been watching asha pacey uh to try and get my head around twin finning and a guy i came across a guy called um i don't know how to pronounce this it's it's a portuguese name but i think it's chow texera kayo probably because it's same as kayo belly um, yeah, I came across him. There was a there was a contest uh, called the Surf Relic Contest, which was in Asha, California, right? Malibu. Malibu. Okay. And he got the nose ride of the competition. So I started following this guy, and I love his surfing. He kind of blends progressive longboard surfing with traditional. Okay, and and my one is uh, it's just kind of one of those cool things during the cold snap that hit the east coast of the US uh, over Christmas while Asha was at home. There's a really, really rare phenomenon where seawater obviously doesn't freeze as easily. It's got to get a lot colder because of the salt content. But if the seawater gets cold enough, it can go to this really weird consistency where it's almost like a, an ice slushy. And there's there's bits of not ice, but it's it's water that's starting to freeze. And it's it, it becomes almost like, like I said, like an ice slushy. If you then get the right set of conditions and there's actually some swell hitting a beach, you get these waves breaking, which don't have the texture of water anymore. And it's just the weirdest thing. Well, they're sort of more viscous. Yeah. So this is a video of, the. I think the video is called Slurpy Waves. Um, And it's just very mesmerizing to watch and terrifying to think that people might actually go out and try and surf in water that's that cold. It just looks horrible. Uh, But yeah, that's my little what to watch. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, we will be back very soon, I hope. We've got a few uh, cool features that we're, we're prepping and lining up for some future episodes this year. But in the meantime, if you want to stay in touch with us, you can, uh, well, you can reach me through podcast at surfsimply.com. Uh, you can also follow Surf Simply on Instagram. We are just at Surf Simply. But if you want to follow any of the guys specifically, Rue, how can we uh, follow you? I'm at Simply Rue Hill. I don't post that often, but if you want to see a picture of my, how epic my bike is, it's <laughs> the last thing I've posted. Very good. Asher? I am found at King underscore Asher. Uh, Tommy? Uh, and mine is at Tommy Potterton. There is a very good photo that Marine took of you nose riding on your Instagram right now with like the light uh, coming through, the fractured light coming through the background. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah. 
Very cool. And uh, yeah, if anyone wants to uh, wants to find me, I'm at HJM Knight. So it's like the most sensible one. There That's we your, go. your initials, your last name, and a picture of you with a funny pack. Yep. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> all right, ladies and gentlemen, from all of us here for now, goodbye. Bye. Bye. That was the Surf Simply podcast from the Surf Simply Coaching Resort in Costa Rica. For more about Surf Simply's video coaching courses for experienced surfers and technical coaching for entry-level surfers, go to surfsimply.com. Okay, uh, this is Harry. I am talking into microphone four. Hello, good morning, and good night. Rupert? Too hot to handle. You got blue sandals. Who shot you? Who got your new spots to vandal? Do not stand still. Both show skills. Close but no krills. Toast for po ills. Post do bills. Coast to coast. Joe Smos flows ill. Go chill. Not supposed to overdose. Know those pills. <laughs> I have that recorded. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually going to use that for the new intro every week now. Yeah. <laughs>